When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everybody and welcome to the Talking City podcast brought to you by the Manchester Evening News. My name is Dan Murphy and joining me today is Mr Joe Gray. How are you Joe? Not too bad, thanks Dan. How are you? Yeah, I'm getting by, I'm getting by. Excited tonight because I finally get to go to a football match. It's been months, but you know, City <laughs> in the youth, youth Cup action at Birmingham tonight. The match will certainly almost already be finished by the time you hear this, dear listeners, but I'm very much excited for it. And also joining me today is Mr Stu Brennan. Stu, how is you going as well? Absolutely fine, thank you very much. Good stuff, good yeah. stuff. Well, someone who wasn't fine this week and in a reverse to my usual segue was Manchester City because... Guys, the 21 winning streak, the 28 game on beaten run, it crashed to an end last weekend against Nova and Manchester United. Stu, what went wrong? Because I don't think any of us saw that coming in quite the same, in quite the way it happened. I mean, I kind of did see it coming. I'm, I'm not trying to sound wise after the event. Miss Clairvoyant <laughs> over here. Yeah, 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 I'm not going to put any money on the lottery on the back of it. That's for sure. But the longer a run like that goes on, 21 games, the longer you think, it's got, you know, law of averages suggests it's going to come to an end. And when you've got a game like United with their recent record against City, you know, and, and their away record, and, and umpteen other factors, the fact that the roles are now reversed from from they were when United were, were top of the pile, in, in that it's, it's one of their biggest things is winning the derby every, every season, as it used to be with City. City have got bigger fish to fry these days. All those factors sort of piled in. You kind of thought it was it was on the cards. I wouldn't have put any money on it beforehand, to be honest with you, the way City were playing, but it's always liable. In a derby, this is what happens in derbies. We've seen it time and time again. I mean, you think back to the uh, the Munich anniversary in 2008 when United were just so much better than City at that time, and everyone was expecting United to go out and put on a show in memory of, of the people who died at Munich and so on, and City go to Old Trafford and turn them over. It's just typical of a derby. And this this feels like that. You know, that that is the gap. There is still between the teams, let's be honest. You know, United played very, very well on the day and they've, they've done okay, but they showed him showed against AC Milan that they you know they haven't got the they haven't got the wherewithal to sustain that kind of that level of, of play. Uh, whereas City have proved that they have had an off night. I, I think as simple as that, off night. Well, it couldn't have come. A worse time for City, Joe. And, you know, two minutes into the game and they fall behind, Jesus giving away a penalty. Kind of, I say that. And then after that, City just kind of, what? they had no ideas. United defended really well, as they can do with um, sitting deep with Maguire and, um, by, or was it Bayer or Lindelof, whichever one it was. They kind of sit deep, they played kind of well, and then they hit United, um, City on the counter in the second half with Luke Shaw. It was kind of typical of United performances we've seen against City in recent times. Solskjaer, I think, has the best record against Pep than any manager who's played him more than four times, I think. So, like, what, as you said, was it just kind of... Is it kind of, no, is it kind of a worrying pattern that City can't do it over Solskjaer? I think a lot of people are saying afterwards it's kind of like Solskjaer is like a Premier League version of the Champions League. A lot of stages for Guardiola because he kind of starts to overthink it. I don't think he overthought it in his team lineup on the derby, but it did seem, again, like Solskjaer had his number when you wouldn't think Solskjaer was quite on that level, you wouldn't have thought. Well, for once, I don't think Guardiola did overthink it. I think for, for the first time in, in a long time, I can think of in a, in a big game, he didn't choose his team based on the opposition. He chose it based on who was in form. So you had 
Jao Cancelo at right back. Maybe Kyle Walker in hindsight was going to be a better way to counter the the uh, the attackers of, of Man United. You had Kevin De Bruyne, who was maybe not in the best form, but was the best player. You had uh, Gabriel Jesus, who played in form, but didn't have a good game against Man United. So in hindsight, he might have been better making two or three different selection calls. And normally he would do to uh, counteract an opposition strength. This time he didn't, and it's gone the other way. Um, but yeah, I think Solskjaer does have something about these derbies, Solskjaer has, has the better of, of Guardiola when it comes to especially playing at the Etihad. And it, it struck me just how simple the game plan was. It was just get the ball forward, play through the wingers, run at City. The, the way to beat this unbeatable City side, turns out, is just to run at them because not many teams have done that in the in this sort of 28-game run before it came to an end. So it was interesting to see that. I think Guardiola will learn a lot from it and it could be a good thing Obviously, losing a derby isn't a good thing from a City's perspective, but it could be a good thing going forward, especially when they're playing in the Champions League against teams who are going to run at them, like, say, they come up against uh, PSG or Bayern Munich, or um, I'm trying to think who else is is left in the competition. But, like, it's going to be, it's not going to be sitting back and and, uh, trying to break down two banks of of five. It's going to be an open game when it comes to these big, big games at the the end of these competitions. So maybe it'll be a learning curve and uh, they'd probably prefer to lose a derby that isn't going to affect the outcome of the Premier League than lose the Carabao Cup final, for example, or or an FA Cup final or some some Champions League game going forward. Was it worrying that, from my kind of recollection, Stu, it's like the first time City have gone behind in ages and then you know the first time they've kind of had a bit of fight back in this run since um since, well the whole of 2021 the first time they've kind of been given they had to take the first hit they've not been able to kind of get back up from it is that kind of a worry that shows they maybe have like a bit of a kind of a glass jar if someone can get a jab in on them first they, they might they might not have a response to it yeah i, I mean just i just uh refer to what what joe said then as well about teams running at them but in this run what City have done brilliantly is pressing. You know, the other teams haven't they haven't let teams run at them because they've just pressed them out of the game. You know, the other team have had the ball and they've had three players around them. They haven't been able to play it out. City, United played it out really well, but there was talk about City looking a little bit leggy. I'm not sure that's the case, but I think they didn't. They weren't right at it in terms of the pressing game. Whether that's because they were a little bit more afraid of United after recent results, I don't know. But you do make a very good point there about not coming back from from a losing position. I mean, I worked it out. It was just, it was December 2019 was the last time they actually did that. They actually came back from a losing position to win a game. And that was when Jamie Vardy scored at the Etihad and City came back to win that one 3-0. As soon as I put that on Twitter, of course, I had City fans all over me saying, yeah, but that's because they've hardly lost any since then. They've hardly gone behind since then. But they have actually gone behind in 10, on 10 separate occasions uh, since that. And they haven't won any of those games. You know, they've drawn some of them, fair enough. but. City aren't in the draws business. City win games, as simple as that. And that is a that is a concern. That, I mean, I, I wrote a piece about this saying it's a concern in the Champions League, as Joe was saying, when you come up against these big, big sides. If you go behind against Bayern Munich, you've got a serious problem because um, they'll pick you off, um, they'll contain you, and they, they know, they'll know exactly how to beat City. I think, I genuinely think that against a Bayern Munich or a PSG, City's only option is to to get on top early in the game, score, and then dictate the game from there. Play their own game, keep keep the ball. If they go behind, I think they'll struggle. I think they'll struggle. So yeah, it is. It's it's a serious serious problem, and they need to find a solution to that. People say it's it's about character, it's about personality. 
I'm not so sure because this team has loads of character and personality. They've shown that time and time again. And I don't think they lack belief. They shouldn't do, given the record, you know, in, in the Premier League and in the domestic cups. Um, they, they have like that little bit of belief in the Champions League. We've seen that. But they've got to overcome that at some point. Otherwise, it'll be another year where, where the Champions League goes begging. They have a bit of a bit of a problem when a game becomes open when they haven't got complete control of it because that's the kind of they've trained so well so meticulously to be in control of games and that is the game plan and the game plan is so good and works so much of the time that they don't really need a plan b but the one times when the few times that that plan doesn't go you know right according to how peppers planned it they don't seem to have because they're so well drilled they're so kind of well um you know, they're a machine that are so perfectly, precisely crafted to do exactly how the, what they're designed to do. But when one cog, one thing goes wrong, they can't. They don't really have that spark of inspiration, um, that kind of individual responsibility, I guess, a little bit to kind of kind of get something out and not dig themselves out of a hole. And it looks to me, Joe, that whenever it's an open game, they kind of struggle a bit when it's not going exactly how they would usually play. What swings to mind? I know they won this game eventually, but they maybe shouldn't have done. The Aston Villa game went um, towards the start of the year. Very open. Villa had a few chances themselves. Obviously, City had the more of them. But that that was against a small team with not as much as with Sue has just said, not as much talent as your Bayerns and your and your um, PSGs. Thankfully, it won't be no Juventus, which was very funny this week. But yeah, like, is this going to be damaging to the rest of the Premier League season? Do you think? Or we we will talk about Southampton after they bounce back straight away. Is it just a blip? But you know, should Pep maybe be looking into maybe ways to kind of deal with scenarios when it's not going exactly City's way, which has cost them in every Champions League campaign he's had under him, really? Yeah, it's a tricky one because you've, you've, you've been mentioning those games there, but the, in the recent sort of four or five games, I think they've they've gone ahead and then been pegged back. So I'm thinking uh, Wolves, West Ham um, and then Southampton this week. They've got back and then won that game and taken control of that again. So maybe falling behind and is a different issue, but I think being pegged back to sort of 1-1 or 2-2 or whatever it is, they, they have shown a, a sort of an ability to find another step that can can only go well. But yeah, against United, as soon as they conceded that penalty, they, they looked a little bit lost for me and, and United had were in full control of that game. So against the better teams, they're not going to have the chance to come back. They need to put these games to bed when they're, when they're leading or when they're not going well, they need to sort of keep it tight and just calm down for five, ten minutes and, and, and reduce the amount of chances that other teams are getting. But there's only so much you can do against Wolves. They had Wolves hadn't had a shot on target or even a touch in the City box and they scored and it was 1-1. So maybe attack is the best form of defence. They've just got to convert the chances that they're making and then hope that the defenders who are in form this season, got to give credit to them, will... Uh, will do the job at the other end and they've just got to hope that everything comes together in these big games but uh, they will learn a lot from that United game and uh, I think they did show a response of sorts again Southampton even though uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it now but the, the scoreline did, did flatter them to some extent. Yeah we'll certainly move on to Southampton we'll leave the past in the past you know it's a blip they've lost one game they're on a brilliant run they're still unless a collapse of epic proportions occurs, they're winning the Premier League. And as we say, they played. we're back in action on Wednesday. No time to really dwell on things. Against Southampton, the Southampton had only won one in nine, I think, of um, their last games in the league, following the 9-0 um, whacking by United. But as we say, they kind of bounced back 5-2. You said they didn't kind of particularly, you know, the score flattered them. Um, what, you know, Joe, what was your kind of making of, of that performance? You know, was it a case of getting the job done? Or should it have been a bit better front for your for your view? 
I think it was a case of scoring at the right times. They didn't start the game well. Southampton were adventurous. They were brave at the start. Um, they were unlucky to go behind. Deserved their equaliser, even though I think best of guard it was went down very, very easily. But it was a penalty. They, they deserved to be on level terms. And then City got two goals before half time that effectively killed the game. But you saw when Southampton went 4-1 down, they were still having a go. And uh, I think Guardiola appreciated that. I think he likes playing against teams who have a go. He said that in his press conference today that he prefers teams to to attack and and sit, think, why, why can't we win, you know? Yeah, he likes it because he always beats them. That's why. Yeah, it's yeah. always praising, you know, Fulham. Can't sing in Fulham's a high hell today. He'll, yeah, he'll praise them because they're going to beat them 6-0 on Saturday. That's why. He's always doing it from when he was at Barca, just praising the hell out of teams who leave themselves completely open to a you know, swift counter and easily defeated. Um, it's a cheeky one that. I'm sure he does it just to get managers um, on side and getting them feel good about themselves so he can just come into town and smash them easily. Well, maybe that's what he said to Hasenhutl at, at full time. Just like, thanks, thanks for having a go. And uh, it was tricky there, but we, we were able to pick you off. But no, I think he, he said after the game that individual players and quality of players in the final third was the difference. And I think bringing Phil Foden back, he got three assists uh, on the night. Riyad Mahrez was brilliant. Kevin De Bruyne put a bad derby performance behind him and got two goals. Gundogan back on the score sheet. It was... Uh, it was a good good performance from from the front players when at times it looked like it might not have been been City's day and especially when that awful awful VAR decision was given against City you, you thought well it's not going to happen but you know credit to City they like the football do the talking and uh, and uh, won a, a very entertaining game yeah we'll certainly touch on VAR and uh, Phil Foden momentarily but first year I want to talk about two players Kevin De Bruyne firstly I think in the derby it was perhaps the worst performance I've actually ever seen from him in a City shirt he's, in the first half especially he could hardly string a pass together it was so out of sorts of course it stood out so much more because he's usually sublime and then Riyad Mahrez um, kind of contrastly he's been probably City's best player over the last kind of six, seven or eight games he started the last six league games played nearly all of them apart from the Southampton match after he'd already scored two is he kind of we were talking, I remember towards the end of last year, we was talking about Player of the Year award, like Mares, um, was it you? Well, he actually won it, didn't he? Because, um, he, of course, he's strong um, fan base. But um, he, amongst us writers, he didn't have much of a much of a say. But this year, I think he's kind of really delivering on a his transfer fee from a few years ago, and he's um, he's you know the promise that he's always had. He's always looked a really talented, really kind of skillful player. But now he's kind of as I was saying at the time, he never was a numbers man, but now he's kind of racking up the assists and goals a bit more. Yeah, I thought he was very good last season. He was really good last season. Absolutely outstanding the other night. World class. You know, his goals were both exceptional. Uh, a lot of his work around the goals was was good. I mean, he, he it was his you know his shot that that came back for uh, was it Gundogan or De Bruyne? I'm trying to think now. Gundogan, it was Gundogan's, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Gundogan's who it led to. Yeah, I mean, he's he's absolutely outstanding. I mean, but it's not that long ago that City fans were saying, get rid, the one-trick pony, blah-de-blah, blah, you know. But players go through these spells, and he, he's outstanding. We we know that from his, from his time at Leicester. He hasn't changed. He just, he just, he did, he took some wild fitting in. He went from being a big fish in a, a small East Leicester pond to being just another player at City. You know, he, he was first name on the team sheet at Leicester. All of a sudden, he comes to City. And he's got to fight for his place. And he didn't do that particularly well at first. Now, 
like you say, he's, he's been City's best player in recent games. Stunning quality. His, his first touch is as good as anyone's I've, I've ever seen, I think. You know, he, he brings balls down out of the sky that he's just got absolutely no right to do. That And when you when the ball goes onto his left foot, I mean, he, he's gone through a phase, even earlier this season, where he couldn't hit a barn door. But he's, he's in one of those spells where every if you see him shift it onto his left foot and find a foot of space, odds are it's going to end up in the bottom corner or the top corner. You can take your pick. But yeah, he's been uh, he's been brilliant. He's been absolutely brilliant, and I think fans just need to remember this: that when he does go through a bad spell, because he will do, all players do. We're talking about Kevin De Bruyne going through one when he goes, but especially players like that, you know, players players who are, to, who are about beating men, you know, and working chances for themselves and scoring goals the way he does, they're more susceptible to having bad spells than players like Kevin De Bruyne who, who are playing like in the thicker things in midfield and are always involved. I mean, I hate to mention the name, but you always think I always think I was covering United for a long while back in the late nineties and early noughties, and, and everyone everyone looks back on Ryan Giggs as this fantastic player, which he was, but he had long spells where he was bloody rubbish. You know, you'd see him go several games without doing anything. Then he'd have two or three great games and score wonderful goals, and everyone raved about him, world class. Mares is similar; he's playing in a playing a similar kind of role. Uh, it's tough to play in that way and play game in, game out. Much tougher than it is when you when you're a midfielder like De Bruyne or, or Bernardo or or any of the others, and I think that's where Mara suffers a little bit sometimes. So I think fans need to sort of ease down on their expectations. He's not going to do that every single game. He's going to have off games. He's going to have off spells. A few games where he doesn't play like that. But the beauty for City is that when he has those off games, they've got players who can come in and pick up the mantle and keep and keep the team rolling forward. But he's he's I, I love watching him. I love when he when he's in that kind of mood as he was the other night. He's one of those players who you pay double the admission price to see. Uh, oh, wow. He's just superb. His touch, his, his strike, uh, the way he just sort of goes past players. He's just brilliant. I love him. His um, first goal was a lovely finish, kind of typical outside the box, bending it into the little corner. But his, his second goal, and as Stu mentioned, um, his shot that led to Gundogan's goal, I don't think any other player in the Premier League dribbles like that. The way he kind of... It's, it was like it was on a string and he was like teasing um, the defenders to try and come and get it and he was leaving it to the last possible moment for a little touch to flick it aside. It's like a cat just playing with a mouse, just baiting them in and then just messing with them. He, he's so, I think I mentioned it in that Player of the Year podcast. said how he's like the one player who maybe does have that little bit of um, spark who isn't all just completely based on numbers and positioning and stuff. He's the one that has that little bit of spark and when it comes off like that, and I, you know, he was helped by a simply kind of shambolic Southampton defence no doubt but you can't really blame them that much because they were ran absolutely ragged by Mares. it was it was some fun yeah no I think he's full of confidence at the moment and he's one of the City players who if he takes a shot and it doesn't come off or if he loses possession he's criticised for being too greedy or giving the ball away but he's got confidence in himself he, he, he is always looking as Stu says to to find that bottom corner and he's probably one of the only City players maybe bar Sergio Aguero who, who will always do that who will always trust themselves with, with a shot and I think for Mar, as you mentioned, he started the last six league games. He scored some really, really important goals in that time. So he scored the goal to get City back in front against Southampton. He scored the goal to get City back in front, if I'm right, against Everton. He assisted John Stones' his winner against West Ham. He's, he's he's not just scoring goals the fourth and fifth in a 5-0 win. He's scoring goals when City are up against it and need someone to take control and, and create something out of nothing and, and swing the game back into their favour. And he's, he's doing that at the moment. And he, I think I, I wrote 
yesterday that he's he's undroppable. And I think in a in a team where Guardiola makes a lot of changes, a lot of players go through a phase when they're in really good form and, and make it impossible for Guardiola to drop him. But at the moment, uh, Riyad Mahrez is the undroppable one. You, you can't look past him for that right wing position because he's not just playing well; he's creating goals, he's creating assists, and he's he's being one of City's most important players in in the last month or so. Yeah, he's certainly one of Pep's favourites at the minute. I don't think anyone can deny that, but something Guardiola is definitely not happy with. And we have to go there, I'm afraid, lads. Bloody VAR. It's been the bo- most boring conversation all season, but unfortunately we have to keep having it for this very reason. Stu, what on earth was happening with that Foden penalty? I, It was kind of... To me, the whole point of VAR is exactly for that scenario. When a player doesn't go down, but he's clearly been fouled. And, you know, that brings up the debate. Like That's why players dive and go down easily, because they don't get it if they stand on the feet. And it's them kind of core issues that just... Just making the game a bit kind of uh, tedium, tedious at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, what well, lots of phrase have been using all season with, with VAR? Clear and obvious error. That's what it's for. If the referee's made a clear and obvious error, VAR steps in and says, look, you made a gaffe here. It wasn't John Moss's fault. You know, John Moss was taking up a position further up the field because Southampton had the ball and you would expect them to play it out. The fact that the, the, the ball then goes back to the keeper who makes a gaff and Phil Foden seizes on it. The referee isn't going to be in a position to see. Can't see that well. So, fair enough with John Moss. I mean, having said that, I'm watching it on telly a lot further away than John Moss is. And my immediate reaction was penalty. And everybody I spoke to, immediate reaction, penalty. Apart from Andy Inchcliffe on, <laughs> on, on the commentary, who for some reason said that he, he didn't think it was and there was no contact. But Andy also made Phil Foden man of the match above Riyad Mahrez. So, I think he was having a bad, as bad a night as Andy Madeley in the uh, in the old VAR bunker. But, yeah, so it goes to VAR and you think, well, as soon as VAR sees that, they're going to either call the ref to pitch side monitor or, or just tell him, look, it's a penalty, simple as, just give it. And the fact that they, they said they can't because they couldn't tell whether the ball was touched or not. It, you know, I, I spend some of my time arguing with City fans because they're convinced that everyone's got it in for UEFA and the Premier League and referees and PG Mall and some moments like this make it really really difficult to argue because you look at it and you think it's just old-fashioned uselessness you know and to be fair he's got they've got a fairly quick decision to make but it's not as quick as referees have always had to make you know he's got other re, other angles to look at it from and whatever angle you looked at that from it was a penalty uh, I mean I wrote and I hate doing this because I think referees have a tough job but when they're making errors to that extent, the competence has to be called into question. And if, if a footballer made a, a mistake of that magnitude or a manager makes mistakes of that magnitude, they pay for it with the job or they pay for it with the place of the team. Now, I mean, in the sort of emotion of the moment, I wrote that referees should be sacked for it, but they shouldn't, not for that. They should be sacked if they do it repeatedly because they're not up to the job. Uh, they should be left, they should be given spells out. Players get spells out of the team if they don't do the job properly. Referees should have the same. They should be taken out. Maybe they should have some kind of VAR seminar that they have to attend, you know, like you do for drunk driving. So, you know, that, that that's what they need. That's what needs to be done. There needs to be some kind of sanction. Uh, it does happen. Unofficially, it happens, but it needs to be made official. Referees are professional now. They're like everybody else. They're not doing a, they're not doing a day job during a week and then going off to referee a game like they were some, some time ago. And because of that, they should be held to account. And when they're not good enough, and Andy, what Andrew Madeley did the other night wasn't good enough. 
when that happens, there has to be a sanction. See, I, yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of jump on them because we also heard the Matt Dean stuff recently, which is not nice at all. There's no need for that ever. No, well, that's and, terrible. Yeah, disgusting. And there's been some, but I think it's the referees are getting, they're being put in the firing line by just, I think, I feel from poor kind of management of them and just the kind of the way they're surrounded in mystery. Like, it's not just in England because the I can the AC Milan goal from Kessie last night. Why was that disallowed? I don't think anybody can really tell. Um, there was the commotion over the penalty in the Dortmund game on Tuesday. A complete farce. It took eight minutes to allow a goal. Two penalties in the process. Just so shambolic. The worst one for me recently was the Brighton game when Dunk scored that free kick. Like that was absolutely just astounding. And obviously this penalty here. It's just. And I don't even think that hit listening to him on the mic's the answer either, because I don't want to make refs the star of the show. I don't I don't watch fo- football to know about referees. I don't care. I don't, you know, I'm not tuning in to United v City and uh, Juventus Porto and big games to analyse the performance of the referees. And, you know, all right, fair enough, any referee would be better than Steve McManaman coming down the blower. But at the end of the day, I'm not watching football for the referees. I don't I don't need to listen to them. But I feel like it just needs to be a more, a, a more transparency of the kind of... As as Stu said there, I think kind of the process and how decisions are analysed after games and how referees are kind of maybe demoted, promoted. And I think at the start of it, they just need better training. They need to, if they're officiating these multi-million pound games that mean so much, the Premier League that are sitting on millions and not billions of pounds should be investing more to improve the standard. Like the training's obviously not good enough and because the, the standards aren't good enough and it's not their fault. And, you know, you said the professional, Stu, they are in the Premier League, of course, but the further down you go, the less so they are. And we've seen some controversial controversial decisions in lower leagues in recent weeks as well, no doubt. They're the most kind of noteworthy of, uh, the most noteworthy recently was, of course, the, the commotion with um, the referee and Alan Judge at Ipswich, which another kind of mad thing. Referees are kind of becoming the star of the show, Joe. Not, and I don't think, apart from, again, maybe Mike Dean aside, I don't think any of them want to be, but they're kind of being thrust in the limelight there kind of being the human shields to poor managing of them I think and poor standards and training yeah well I, I follow lower league football as you do Dan and whenever you, you see a game and you recognize the name of the referee that's never ever a good thing because it's always for a bad reason the best referees are the ones who you don't know the name of who, exactly who you don't notice and just make the right decisions and move on and um, yeah I, I would say that the problem with just the incident the other day was was the rules they were looking for whether uh, Alex McCarthy, the goalkeeper, got a touch on the ball. They couldn't decide whether he did or didn't, so didn't award the penalty. I kind of get the logic, but when you see a very, very, very clear replay of McCarthy getting Foden's shooting foot as he's about to pull the trigger and taking it out from where he's standing and causing him to stumble, how how is it not a penalty? So they're looking for the wrong things. They're looking for sort of the they're looking to make the most correct decision, not not what's sort of the reality of what's happened. It's the same with all the handballs. Like they're, they're trying to work out. Is it definitely handball? Where does handball start and finish? How has it affected a goal or whatever? You've just got to, you can't judge things by common sense, but you need a bit of common sense in there. And I I, I don't have a solution myself, but I think the way that they approach VAR and the, the order needs to be changed a little bit. Because when you have incidents like that, when everybody, bar obviously the VAR official and Andy Hinchcliffe, think that it's a penalty, then it's, it's obvious to everyone. And Guardiola said it, 
perfectly at the end of the game that yes City won 5-2 but on, on other occasions they're not that's going to be the turning point in a game and they're not going to win a game and mm-hmm. if, if that if that happened in a relegation scrap you mentioned the Brighton one where they were not allowed that goal for for whatever reason because the referee blew his whistle and then blew it again it's going to affect relegations and, and promotions and it's, it's the finest of margins so um, I can understand why Guardiola was as strong as he was after the game because it's it's a shocking decision, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Oh, cat. Oh, <laughs> lovely, lovely little cameo there. Yeah, I say, I think the referees, and there's been some high-profile ones, they're not helping themselves, they're making some poor decisions. Really high-profile ones are that. Decisions that I'm sure didn't happen 10 years ago when I was watching. Obviously, there was the dodgy red cards and stuff, but I'm sure there was never this much constant, massive mistakes that just seem... I'm having Graham Paul giving three yellows in the World Cup, which is obviously mad. Um, I don't think there's anything... I don't remember the decision being this kind of all over the place as they were. And I don't think it's all on the referees. I think, as I've said, PGMLO, whatever they're called, the referee people, the reals people, they're completely waffling and going back and forth on handball and making stupid rules, changing it in mid, mid-season, but they're not changing it. And all this bizarre stuff, like I said, the training standards obviously need more investment hopefully it said it won't you know hopefully I always think it does tend to even itself out in the end everyone gets on the receiving end of bad decisions everyone gets some in their favour at some point it's just annoying at the minute because it's so high profile it's becoming the story more so than the actual football you know we've just spent just 10 minutes talking about it and we don't want to be we don't want to be talking about football so we'll move on um, it's a big week for City it starts with a game which could be a dodgy one to do Fulham and then they've got Champions League on Wednesday and Tuesday and then an FA Cup quarter final on Saturday but we're trying to focus on Fulham you'd usually think City and Pep would use this to kind of swap a few players and he may well do but this isn't quite the walk in the park you'd normally expect Fulham are playing well a good 1-0 win against Liverpool last weekend they're the team that look like they're going to kind of fight their way out of the relegation zone. Scott Parker is kind of proving myself and certainly a lot of people wrong with the way he's doing with that Fulham team. And big Tony Khan, respect, making some good signings. And one of those good signings was Tosin Aridabayo from City. You've wrote about him for this weekend and he's he's putting in a hell of a season for Fulham. Yeah, I'm not so sure about Fulham doing well. I mean, going to Anfield and only winning 1-0. I mean, there's something wrong there, isn't <laughs> there? Nearly my drink out. <laughs> You can't beat these mid-table teams you, at this stage of the season when you're fighting relegation. What are you going to do? You know, seriously. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been massively impressed, and I, I was I was watching that. I mean, I I interviewed Tosin a few times when he was a, a young lad at City, and he is a lovely, polite, pleasant lad. And I, whenever I saw him play, he always looked a terrific football. He looked like he had all the attributes to be a, be a Pep Guardiola central defender. He's six foot five. He's pretty quick. And he's, he's got nice feet and he can pass a ball. I mean, I thought he was excellent for Blackburn in the championship last season. And that's why Fulham have, have gone in for him. Uh, I know Scott Parker came up against him when he was at Tottenham's academy and, and Tosin was playing for City's academy and rated him then. Then he came up against him again in the championship last season, Fulham and, uh, and Tosin at Blackburn. And uh, when he heard he was up for grabs, he was in for him. And I know Everton and West Ham were both in the sniff there as well. And, and from what I'm hearing... Tosin could have gone to Everton, he could have gone to West Ham. He chose Fulham because of Scott Parker and because of the of what he laid out for him. You know, he knew he'd be playing in the first team straight up and get that chance because he's, he's extremely ambitious. And I think he's he's showing in his in his first season in the Premier League, he's still only 23 years old. You know, I know Ruben Diaz has kind of set the standard for 23-year-old centre-backs in the Premier League, but, but Ruben Diaz had already been playing for some time at Benfica before that and for Portugal. Uh, Tosin's come straight in, straight into a relegation battle. And 
him and Anderson look look excellent to me. Look like a really really good centre back pairing, and both can play football. I mean Anderson, he's out passing. I mean Tosin's a good passer of the ball, but Anderson, he's, he's one of their main. He's like a he's like a, a quarterback, you know, pinging balls to their their front players. And I was looking at the stats. Fulham have got the best defensive record in, in the bottom half. You know, there's nobody nobody conceded less goals than them or fewer goals, I should say. And they've they've got as good a defensive record as Liverpool and Everton. They've, they've conceded one goal more than Manchester United, who were second in the table. All these stats kind of show you what the problem is with Fulham. You know, and, and now they're getting it together a little bit. You know, they, we saw at Anfield that they're capable of, of defending well and hurting you. Uh, when, when they get forward, they've got they've got good players. You know, Luckman Luckman's been been good, and um, they've got other players up front who are who are a danger. Uh, and they look to me like they're going to haul themselves out of it. Newcastle are looking really wobbly, uh, and I can see Fulham pulling themselves around, which you wouldn't have thought was going to happen uh, a couple of months ago. Having said all that, I'd still about to to go there and win. Uh, and it, and if Scott Parker does fall for Pep's little ploy of building him up and saying what a great bold manager is and, and goes out and plays attacking football. Um, we might get a little bit of a Southampton situation where they, they cause City problems early on, but then as soon as City get their head around the game, you'd always tell City to uh, to win in a in a straight fight. Mm-hmm. Joe, I presume you agree that you think City are winning this, um, and, uh, this game on Saturday. And then what stuff have you got coming down the pipeline for the website this weekend? Yeah, completely agree. City have got to be looking at this to win. I think Guardiola said he wants six more wins out of the last nine and third from bottom, home or away, you've, you've, you've got to be winning. However impressive Fulham have been in recent weeks. Fulham, just in general, uh, when they went down a couple of years ago, I thought they had no identity. Pretty boring. I was quite glad to see the back of them in the Premier League, but this season they have tried tried to play the right way and uh, they've played the part in quite a few good, entertaining games and uh, that's what you want to see, especially when you're looking from like a neutral perspective. But when City are looking at this game, it's, it's, it's got to be even so often as, as the goal because they're, they're looking to win a title they're not looking to be nice not not looking to help out Guardiola's friends in in the opposite dugout that he likes It's it's got to be three points or nothing for City um, yeah this weekend Stu's looked at a Fulham aspect I've been looking at dodgy refereeing decisions one of which I would call the uh, probably the most dodgy refereeing decision I, I can think of in a while can you remember Ben Thatcher's elbow on Pedro Mendes yeah only yeah. a yellow card Wow, Look, I do know how you think about it. So, all right, so that's going to be a deep dive into that little one, is it? Showing us that referees have been making bad decisions for a lot longer than they are today, I guess. Yeah, so I looked at sort of the uh, the the reaction to that and what everyone was saying, and it prompted a, a police investigation. And Thatcher's spoken about it in the past and uh, how it affected him personally because uh, he had a reputation on the pitch, but all the all the quotes about him are saying he's a lovely lad, but it was a, an interesting one to to read into and uh, an absolutely shocking challenge. And uh, on you a similar note, would be reeling with an iron fist, would you? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of politics. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've also got a Barton piece coming on the from uh, Stephen, who's our new trainee writer on the MEN. So uh, another controversial figure in uh, City's history, but uh, should be an interesting one that about. Uh, Joey Barton's time at the Etihad and uh, and then his uh, returns to the Etihad, obviously, for, for QPR. Absolutely. Well, dear listener, thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out those very interesting pieces and, of course, all our coverage of the weekend's game at Fulham and the coming uh, games in the week, please go over to the Manchester Evening News forward slash Man City. Go on Facebook at Manchester Evening News Man City. Twitter at Man City MEN. I'm sure you can get us all on Twitter as well if you just search our names. We're not hard to find. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week.